The Innovative Medicines Initiative is the world's largest public-private partnership with a 5 billion euro budget. For three years, Pierre Moulin has been the IMI's executive director, bringing with him a wealth of international experience, including a stint as the head of Genome Canada and founding Molecular Medicine Ireland. He was educated in the UK and obtained his PhD in molecular biology in 1981, and even spent a period of time as the director of research at Aventus Pasteur, now Sanofi Aventus in France. Pierre, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for your time, sir. Good to see you, Dwayne. Good to see you as well. Now, we have a confession (laughs) to make. Might as well get this off the table. You and I met three years ago in Washington. We were sitting next to each other. We were. And it was at a dinner at an event we were hosting on Adaptive Pathways in the U.S. Capitol. And we got to talking. And so, okay, we've both discussed uh, your medical background here quickly. What else did you do, Pierre? (laughs) (laughs) Well, in a former life, I was a musician. Where, Pierre? Mostly in the UK. And what instrument did you play, Pierre? The French horn. That's very interesting, Pierre, because as you know, <laughs> I too was a French horn player in London. So we were both, uh, it was quite interesting. We, we, our paths have intersected here in many multiple and strange ways. <laughs> very interesting indeed. It's a small world. <laughs> yeah, don't even tell you. I used to work there at Disneyland. So, so how, did, how does one go from playing the French horn to running the IMI, Pierre? How does this happen? Well, um, making a life as a musician is, as you know, pretty tough sometimes. I could neither comment nor deny, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went back to my first love, which was science. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, after a, a short period uh, doing postdocs and so on, as one does in yeah. the Pasteur Institute and other places, went into the industry, uh, both in biotech, small biotech, and then larger companies like Aventus, now Sanofi Pasteur. And spent um, about 18 years in the industry and then changed because I was very interested in this interface between public and private. Right. And then got onto more of the funding, scientific administration, if you like, part and very interested in collaborative models, partnership models, starting out with the Dublin Molecular Medicine Center, Molecular Medicine Ireland, and then uh, moving over to Canada and the Genome Canada family. Because of that, I guess, public and private experience. You were brought into the IMI. Uh, brought into the IMI, and uh, it's a really interesting place. So you've been here three years. Can you just give to those folks, I mean, I'm sure there's two or three out there who listen who may not know. Can you give a thumbnail sketch as to what exactly the IMI is? Sure. Well, it is a very large public-private partnership. Uh, it is, as you stated in your introduction, the largest of its kind in the world. And it represents for me an amazing commitment, long-term commitment from the public through the European Commission and the private side through the European pharmaceutical industry. Long-term, I mean over two framework programs, 14 years, with a 5 billion euro budget Com- yeah, commitment. Uh, commitment. And this is, this is quite unique. And what we can do in that sphere is to really mobilize industry resources, and I'm talking about people with industry mindsets, right? um, because that's how they contribute to the program. Human assets. Human, human assets, and integrate them with people, very bright people from uh, academia and and, uh, clinical research, but not only those. We can also, on the funding side, on the public side, we can fund regulators, we can fund health technology assessors, we can fund patient groups, we can fund SMEs. And so we can build a new ecosystem. So we're able to mobilize those industry resources to do things that maybe they would not 
do otherwise or wouldn't be investing uh, the amounts of money that they're uh, putting into to this program because those things are usually huge challenges, high risk, antimicrobial resistance, right. Ebola, Alzheimer's disease, you know, type 2 diabetes, where they are able to find spaces on the industry side to do non-competitive or pre-competitive research together. Right. And that's a big thing for IMI because um, most of the, if not all of the programs are, are joint. Uh, you know, we have GSK, Lilly, Merck and Pfizer working on the same, uh, on the same projects. So they can de-risk things. Uh, they can work in that safe space and have access to the great uh, knowledge coming from our our fantastic universities and SMEs, building a quite a new uh, ecosystem and putting a bit of industry uh, know-how into these projects. And this is that's the magic of the public-private. So the idea is it doesn't become the overly theoretical or overly academic. There's a practical application of it exactly. at the end exactly. that should then have a commercial purpose or at least something be co- co- cognitively deliverable. Exactly. So we're very high into the, the translational uh, research piece and exactly how, and I think that has been historically one of the weaknesses in, uh, in Europe, have been fantastic universities. But where is the knowledge going? Well, I don't think it's just Europe. I mean, even if you look at a lot of the money that comes out of, you know, the vaunted NIH, you know, a lot of that's extremely early stage. And and most of that is that's risk. It's risky money, but it's early stage. It's development. It's pre it's proof of concept. money. Absolutely. And And how, how can we how can we create an ecosystem that accelerates the translation of that great knowledge into something useful and ultimately should benefit the society of Europe as a whole? Of course. What do you think is the core focus right now of IMI? Where, where do you see this current budget cycle, cycle mainly being focused in the, which research area? So what IMI has done over a number of years working on really trying to accelerate the drug development process rather than developing new drugs themselves. I mean, that, the development of new drugs is really the business, right. uh, the business part. So it, it's been very focused on, you know, drug safety because there the companies can work together. It's an important issue for the public. Uh, and it's also a big, important issue for the, the drug developers. It's there. also a cost per company, and, and there's no reason to each of them exactly. to spend it on their own. Exactly. So that has been the traditional model, and we've been, uh, and then the, you know that goes on to biomarker discovery sure. and, uh, and lots of things across all kinds of diseases. Now the main focus is still accelerating drug drug development, but it's also bringing in many other players. Um, Because, you know, we can't have a credible AMR program without rapid diagnostics. Right. So we need the diagnostic. We can't have a credible Alzheimer's disease uh, program without medical imaging. Right. Uh, so, So it's bringing those other actors. And you know very well all that we're doing on the big data issues. So the digital companies need to come in. So it's expanding that base as well as expanding on the public side then... If we can get the attrition rate down, which is still a, a big, big problem question. and a big problem in the industry, and is directly related to what you pay for your medicine, how you pay for your medicines, and so on. If we can try and and do that, then we need to discuss with uh, the regulators more intimately, with the HDA bodies more intimately, and drive a kind of, and we'll talk about it later on, I'm sure, drive a kind of pull mechanism from the system to bring innovation uh, in that is 
thought of as value add for them. We're all, I consider a lot of what we do, you know, we're technology pushers. Right. What we have not done really well, I don't think, is articulate the value to the system, the potential value to the system on some of these innovations and, and get that pull. And the the end user, well, obviously the end user is the patient, but the gatekeeper often is the regulator. And when we're talking about all the programs and big data, essentially that is providing an evidence base for the regulator to make a better decision. How are they playing and involved in these projects? Yes, they, as you know, they have been uh, involved from the beginning, but I think we need to involve them more. Mm-hmm. And we have the the ability to fund the national regulators mm-hmm. and to engage with uh, EMA, of course. EMA sits on our scientific committee. We can't do enough in terms of how that interaction works, and uh, we can both learn an awful lot from, from each other and, uh, and drive each other's agendas and influence each other's agendas. Yeah, and collectively help each other. Exactly. Out, so, uh, obviously, I'm sure you're aware there's been a lot of uh, things going on in Europe. <laughs> I don't know if you've read the news, but, uh, <laughs> you know, Brexit, uh, you know, some of the things going on in France. IMI is funded through 2024, and that's, that's a definite, but there's obviously your European elections coming along. How do you see the current political climate and the next elections perhaps impacting the next round of the IMI? How do you see these things playing out over the next five, ten year cycles of mm-hmm. IMI's projects? Well, of course, every model has its, its critics, you know, and, <laughs> and uh, IMI has its own critics. Uh, of course, but and I, I remind people, you know, IMI is it's not for everyone, uh-huh. and it's not for everything, right? But I believe that for certain things, uh, where there is a big public health need, where there's a high risk, so that industry may not be willing uh, and able to invest the amounts of money uh, alone that would be required to solve a particular problem. And I've just mentioned AMR and Alzheimer's are the, sure. the, the typical examples that uh, we always use. Well, 253 failures in Alzheimer's in a row, right? Well, exactly. And, and probably 10 billion euros spent by the, by the industry at least. And, and the rest, probably, At least. Yeah. And so the industry is moving. So every, it, it's really interesting because everybody is moving. So the, the funders are moving, the industry is moving, the public sector is moving, the regulators are moving. The patients are evolving. Their sure. voice is, is becoming more and more important and more and more interested in, in getting involved in our projects. So the ecosystem is changing, of course, independent of the political views and changes in, the, in that landscape. Keeping citizens healthy will still be the number one priority for most nations, or yes, if not, not all nations. It's not going away. <laughs> yeah. And so what kind of things... Would public-private partnerships be best at trying to solve? What, right. are the, what are those big things? How do we incentivize the industry to still play? And as you know, some of them have walked away from neuropsychiatric or dementia because, yeah, it's very tricky. And you know, the chances of you losing a lot of money through investments that go wrong, it's high. So why not take the advantage of this vehicle, which is public and private, where private sector people can work together, Mm -hmm. and that collaborative, I can't say enough about the value of that private sector collaboration, where 10 years ago, if you asked the pharma sector to pool all of their chemical libraries into one pot and then allow everybody to screen them, and I mean, come on, 
Mm. You know, that used to be their most precious asset. Right. And now, as you know, the European Lead Factory, they have pooled, or seven big ones have pooled all of their of those assets. And that is going towards now sharing uh, clinical data in Alzheimer's disease, sharing lots of stuff on diabetes, on AMR, of course. So that ecosystem has changed, and at le- IMI has been at least a, a part of that catalyst in that in that changing of how people work. And again, bringing it back to the future, do you see that? Do you see the budget being there? Do you see this going forward without any problems? Well, I mean, I see if there's a future, the decisions have been made, whether there's a, a third phase for a public-private partnership in health, but it certainly is in the realms of uh, discussion for sure. And there I, I can see the big factor being expanding to embrace these other s- industry sectors where right. we, we need the digital. And th- that space is just exploding, as, as you well know. The digital, the imaging, the med tech, the diagnostics, all of that stuff that is going on but needs to be integrated. Technology convergence yeah. is happening. And I think if uh, the players can play uh, together... I think we can have impacts on systems. And I know we want to talk a little bit about the health systems and some of the real challenges there. But the health systems are today far too siloed. The health systems are going to talk, oh, well, we'll talk about the drug reimbursement with this pharma company and so on. And we'll talk about this diagnostic over here with this. And that's not going to work. But isn't that also a political problem, particularly, okay, it exists in the States too, but at least there are some elements of more elements of private competition. I mean, in Europe, you have these political silos that actually many times they're legal that these things are separated. How yes. do you see IMI potentially helping to alleviate those well, I mean, we challenges? Do, we do small steps, huh? small yeah. steps. So uh, and we do have some projects. I'm thinking of a project called Harmony. It's a big data project bringing in clinical data from many different countries. So there are jurisdictional issues there. There are privacy issues, yeah. <laughs> GDPR issues. Uh, and it's a big, it's a 50 million euro project, many companies involved, because this could be a model for a more federation type of approach to data, where everybody uh, can see the value. And we, we eliminate a bit by bit these jurisdictional hurdles, legal hurdles around uh, the sharing of data. And I think that since most of the European systems are more kind of uh, social-based systems rather than what's happening in the States, then uh, I think Europe has a big card to play here. And I think the collaborative nature of what we do, even though there are language issues and jurisdictional issues and so on, I think that we can we can play. This is would be our competitive uh, edge, uh, I think. Don't forget that in the States, uh, healthcare costs a lot more per capita than it does in Europe, and the health outcomes are are are, 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 are not that are not as good. More uneven. Are more uneven. Yes. That's probably the more more accurate. Uh, at at twice the price. <laughs> at twice the price. So I I think that Europe has a a a real potential competitive advantage there, given the 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 collaborative nature of of what we're doing. And vehicles like IMI, and IMI is not, not the only thing, of course, but vehicles like IMI can really facilitate uh, some of this stuff. Your personal experience, you've worked, obviously, educated in the UK, you've worked across Europe, you've worked in Canada, North America. 
How do you compare that experience now with IMI as opposed to, say, 10 years ago? How has the climate changed? Well, <laughs> I think some of the – unbelievably. <laughs> so the scientific progress uh, has been extraordinary. And I think a little bit of the disappointment, if I have a disappointment, it's to see that the, there's been a, a lag phase, a big lag in our ability to implement the new knowledge into systems. And I think we need to find a way of accelerating that. Because when we look and see, you know, just, just one example, one of our projects was uh, highlighted at uh, one of our 10th anniversary events in, in June. Uh, it's called UBioPred. It's a severe asthma project. And there were patients uh, very integrated into that project. Uh -huh. And one of them got up and said, you know what, my life has changed because of this project, because this project was able to profile my my disease more accurately. I had got a new uh, definition of what my disease was. I was able to go to my medical doctor, and he changed my medication due to what this uh, project told me that my disease was. And it has that change has changed my life. That is one person. Right. There are millions of people in Europe suffering from severe asthma. How do we translate the knowledge of that project, that one project that could could potentially benefit millions of people? But that means that we need systemic change. And that is not, it's easy to say, very challenging to do at scale uh, with all the technologies that one requires. And this is where we need to really work with our friends from, from the regulatory bodies and from the HDAs and from the, the payers, the ministries of health of, of the European uh, Union. We need to find a way of articulating the value that that kind of translation would bring to the European citizen. But shouldn't the IMI then also be in a unique place to actually facilitate that? It would seem like you sit as the honest broker between all these parties. I think a similar knowledge broker platform needs to be maintained and, and continued in that direction. Mm -hmm. uh, and for us to have in the next phase of a public-private partnership in health to really have that impact on systems. Right. And that would be, for me, uh, that would be the you know, 14 years plus the next seven years, 20 years of investment, you know, that would be a game changer and it would be well worth the cumulative 10 billion or whatever it would be, you know, because 10 billion over 20 years is actually nothing compared to the amount that healthcare costs. Right? It's four or five drugs. Actually. <laughs> it's, it's not very much, right? Looking at that problem, though, what we're also talking about, though, is changing local politics, because often these are political decisions that are made in Europe with one person or two people who often have access to data or access to financing. It's often a political problem. How can IMI straddle that research agenda, but also then break down those political barriers? Because that's, that's going to be tricky. Well, that I'm not sure that I might can do. <laughs> but if you're so, talking about fundamentally changing these barriers, that does become a political problem. It, it, you're, you're quite right. But I think all we can do is generate the kind of no-brainer evidence. <laughs> yeah. Generate evidence where the political decision makers, they won't have a choice. Somebody will, will, somebody will start, they'll see the value, and the rest will follow. Because... 
they will be morally, ethically, uh, you know, uh, uh, driven to to do this. But our job, I think, collectively in terms of our product projects are delivering. Yeah. And I think this is what we can do because we can't get involved in the in the politics. Sure. Um, I think what we should stick to doing is generating the solid evidence on which decisions, good decisions, will be made. The work we've been doing at VT has shown that there are serious competitive issues emerging between the U.S., Asia, and Europe regarding next-generation health care. Obviously, a lot of this stuff is being invented here in Europe, and there's great science, but a, a vast majority of it, almost uh, three-quarters, is ending up being commercialized and the value chains being exploited in the United States. What do we need to do to improve Europe's competitiveness? So this is uh, a really interesting question. And I think there have been many, many attempts to really try and change and facilitate this translation of knowledge into commercial products and so on and so forth. I mean, I think the U.S. is an outlier in its ability to do this. The U.S. is extremely good at doing this. And I think there there are many mechanisms that are now they're still evolving, and I know our we have a very active commissioner, uh, Carlos Moidash, who is mm-hmm. uh, really uh, on top of this. And I think the the next uh, phase of Horizon Europe, as you know, there's a, a new uh, a proposal in terms of a European Innovation Council uh, being brought to bring it down to what is needed is more seamless access to venture capital and to risk capital for the knowledge base that is, as you say, amazing in Europe. Mm. I mean, it is amazing, the, the the knowledge creation machinery that's available here. And there are still a bit of uh, old Europe uh, types <laughs> of bottlenecks that we absolutely need to, uh, to fix in order for us to uh, take advantage of that knowledge, keep that knowledge and the commercialization of that knowledge or the, the utilization of that knowledge in Europe. And how can I and I help with that? Well, I mean, I think we can only help in a small way, but we can link in with other things. There are amazing uh, other funding mechanisms to help SMEs and, and to help not only financially, but management-wise. I mean, there are many, many components of this. Uh, IMI can do its own thing by trying to bring, you know, users. Our big thing is end-to-end integration. It's not only the researcher in, in a laboratory that's needed at the beginning of a project. We need the regulators. We need the, right. the, the users. We need the payers. We need the HTA bodies right at the beginning. And that end-to-end integration, if we can, if we can do more of that and if we can scale that, so that it becomes the norm and not just IMI. Yeah. It becomes the normal way of doing business uh, across, the, across the ecosystem. Then we would have achieved something. Now, Framework 6, leading up, picking up on this, because Framework 6 was really about basic research and pre-competitive environment. Now you're looking at competitive systems and overall sharing of resources, including the data platforms and stuff. What do you think should happen next then? What would you like to dedicate in the next level of funding and where do you think IMI should go? Well, I mean, I, th- I think it is going to be on how we impact or how can we impact systems. Okay. And I think it's not stopping uh, fundamental research or shifting fundamental more money into this or that. We need absolutely to have the fundamental research going on. If you turn that tap off, 
yeah. you'll you'll just uh, drop in the ocean very very quickly. So, so that's that's not what we need. But what we need is a more holistic uh, thinking about how we can change the health systems. And I think we have there are certain things that we can do on our side, which is to do with the technology convergence and people dismantling the the silos from our side. So start with pharma diagnostic medtech imaging uh, digital speaking much, uh, with more with one voice more seamless on the on the on on our side yeah and then having that similar interface on on the user side on the health system side so that they can understand this new approach because it is you know we're going to redefine diseases in terms of what is a severe atmosphere of what is breast cancer, what is type 2 diabetes, because it's not just one thing. Absolutely. I mean, and look at Alzheimer's. I mean, we're starting exactly. to segment Alzheimer's now. Exactly. And cystic fibrosis, an orphan yeah. drug. I mean, we yeah. actually have 5% of the patients, so a micro-orphan now yeah. is cured. Yeah. You know, again, we're dividing and slicing and dicing dividing these things and up. And, and on the other side, there needs to be a health system that not only understands that sort of scientifically and biologically, but can deal implements with it. can deal with it yeah. So, in an organizational way. Now, having said that, I think the world should be doing a lot more in prevention. And I think that's another angle that another phase of uh, public-private partnership uh, in health could really look at, especially if we bring the early diagnostics, the digital and so on. Because if we cannot, let's face it, if we cannot keep 90% of the population as healthy as possible, we're never going to be able to afford to treat the yeah. 10% with these high-end uh, medications. If we look at the actual problem in Europe, it's not necessarily about the technology level. It's not necessarily about the science. It's certainly not about the education system or the universities. Really, it's a question of demographics. I mean, Europe right now, for every single pensioner, we have four workers. That'll be going to two workers by 2060. Now, the average tax rate is 48% now with four workers. I don't think anyone's advocating, well, maybe a couple who just got elected to the U.S. Congress would advocate a 96% tax rate. But I don't think anybody in Europe, even in the most extreme, is advocating that position for the average worker. I mean, it's a demographic problem. Yeah. And if we're talking about systems, how do you think IMI could start focusing on these grand challenges related to mm. the demographic challenges of Europe? Mm. Well, I mean, I, I think in, in part some of our projects are. Yeah. So we're launching a project on obesity the beginning of this year. And that one takes in, it's a huge problem, but it takes it from a holistic uh, nature. So not only looking at pharmacological interventions to help people but also uh you know psychiatric uh, sure. analyses and and all the all the other environmental uh, issues that go around this uh, this problem which leads and we all know about the obesity epidemic in in uh, in the world and that leads to higher rates of cancer and heart sure. disease and diabetes and so on which are the big financial drivers killing our healthcare systems. Well, so does aging, though, as well. Well, yeah, for yeah. sure. And mental mental health, I think, uh, is a, a major thing. And some of we talked about, you know, competitiveness with uh, Asia and the, and, and the US and so on. I think there are for some of these things, I think we can have a partnership approach. Um, because these are, you know, I think in Japan, currently, I think there are 75,000 people who are over 100. Yeah, and they have a very interesting approach to you know caring for for those people using high technology as well. 
Now, why wouldn't we, uh, for a big project in, uh, in dementia, why wouldn't we be linking and collaborating with our colleagues in Japan, our colleagues in North America and, and elsewhere, because this is a global problem? Looking at that, if you had an opportunity now to change you know, one thing or make a proposal for the next grant round, what would you like to do now if you were given carte blanche? What would you like to happen well, I think it would be the you know objective would be in terms of uh, impact on systems and us being able to articulate together, looking cross sector industry, this, taking advantage of this technology convergence that we've spoken about, and taking a really holistic view on this, including prevention and early diagnostics, because we know that that is going to save money. You right. know, but but how do we? collectively think about this in a holistic strategy for uh, healthcare. So I would love to, you know, uh, have that as a main driver, technology convergence, and then articulating the value to systems of this kind of uh, approach. Pierre, it's uh, always a pleasure. Thank you very much for your time. Dwayne, always a pleasure with you. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks.